Is there going to be any more any more cheapy sounds? Yeah. Yeah. You don't even need to make it. I was going to say. It yeah. already exists. It already exists. So many. So many. So many. Damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And today in the studio, we have uh, Alexander Chi. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, welcome. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Um, Alexander Chi is the author of most recently... The Queen of the Night, which I, uh, we are going to discuss, but you also wrote Edinburgh, and um, you are a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts, which is from um, from the McDowell Colony, Leddig House, and Civitella Ranieri, which I think I probably butchered. And your no, writing actually, appears. You said that correctly. Oh, great! <laughs> um, and your writing appears in all the cool places: New York Times Book Review, Tin House, Slate, NPR, um, and. Your book is incredible. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. I do want to talk about the cocktail because I'm actually really proud of this one. Yeah, it's a really good one. Um, so the main character of The Queen of the Night is uh, Liliette Byrne. And uh, this cocktail is the Liliette. And uh, I chose, of course, uh, I saw... There's Lillette, which is close enough yeah. uh, for my purposes. And I also got a little bit of sake and uh, grapefruit and ginger. And I uh, just shook that up over ice. And uh, you can get the proportions on everything on the website, so many damn books.com slash the damn bar. Pew! <laughs> I'm going to drink a lot of this this summer, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it sort of speaks to Lillette. There's a, that there's, it's unexpected with the sake. This would be like a really good drink to serve actually in a brothel in a, in a, in a Maison Close, like especially for the girls to drink because it's light and yeah. they don't, they wouldn't get too drunk, mm. um, you know. Which is also good for uh, podcasting. Yes. True. One of the many. One of the many similarities. <laughs> between, <laughs> between the two things. <laughs> we talk about uh, what we bought yeah what do you want to start that off to sure um i just picked up a book called gentlemen prefer blondes and but gentlemen marry brunettes because um, <laughs> apparently there was a sequel uh, it's by anita Luz, and my book club decided to read it um because i think somebody in one of the more recent lenny letter emails oh. was talking about it i don't know cool who it was lena dunham and jenny connor's yeah. newsletter um but it's great it has like all of these lovely little pen and ink illustrations and it's just like it's light and funny and very strongly feminist from a time that you don't expect that oh that's cool yeah it's exciting how about you uh i purchased um, so uh, also an HMH book, uh, as Queen of the Night is, <laughs> um, I got Mods Line by Margaret Verbal. Which, uh, the, uh, finalist for the Pulitzer, right? Right. And it's sort of like, it's sort of interesting. It's just this quiet novel about an 18 year old in 1928. Very sort of, I don't know. I, I it's, I'm curious how this like caught. 
the eyes of a P- the Pulitzer Committee. It's it's a little under the radar for them, right? Yeah, yeah. And I also got this um, sort of silly like they just it looked like a a library book that I would have purchased um, as a kid or like a something from the Scholastic. Um, oh, like the book fair? Yeah, book fair. Yeah. It's a book called The Time of the Witch by Mary Downing Hahn. Um, and if you look this up, it's like one of these Avon Camelot paperbacks. And um, the the sub the sub question or the it, uh, above the title it says does does Laura dare accept a favor from a witch? <laughs> it was a simpler time. You know? <laughs> it, it, I'm excited about that 80 pages of fiction. I, I kind of can't believe actually that I have not read that already. <laughs> like in my childhood, right? It, it does look like the sort of thing that you would bring like ten of on a trip somewhere. Yeah. Um, I bought uh, Brian Blanchfield's Proxies this week, which is a collection of essays. It's his debut. Um, he He's an old friend of mine from like struggling writer days in the 90s and when I lived in uh, the South Slope and um, would do things like read in East Village bars um, that don't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, and so it's, it's wonderful to see, uh, to see this, this book come out and mm. I'm, I'm using it to try to think about my own essay collection that I'm trying to put together. Oh yeah. In cool. a way I like to think about his choices and as I think about my own, what's the, what are the subjects that he, he tackles? Oh, it, I mean, it's organized chronologically, but the subjects are things like um, owls, <laughs> or I, th- I think there's one that about loneliness. Oh, wow! Uh, foot washing is another one. Um, it's uh, it was it was interesting to, especially at the time that I bought it, I had just uh, listened to a, a craft talk out at the Evanston literary festival that I was just at this week in Chicago and, uh, Charmapt Russell, the uh, science writer, she gave this talk about, um, what she called fruitful questions that would guide you in the creation of, of an essay collection. It was just a way of like thinking about like, what's, what's the most interesting direction you can take this, uh, this essay in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like without, Maybe no. I mean, I don't know whether he studied with her or not, but there seemed to be some sort of uh, interesting relationship between her talk and and his book. Hmm. So. Cool. Sounds great. Yeah. But let's talk about your book, Queen of the Night. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> which is probably why you came here to to be part of our show. Um, well, the cocktail was a big lure, too. <laughs> I'm glad. Oh, here. Here, I'll have to take a refill. Yeah, let me just pass this your way. So the novel concerns, as I said before, Lilliet Byrne, and it starts, it's sort of a picaresque, I would say, novel that follows her as she begins in a, um, in a circus and as a, as a horse rider and singer all the way through as she becomes a, a storied part of the constellation of stars that make up Parisian opera, um, as well as other places that she travels. Would you say that that's, what would you add to that? I think that's pretty accurate. I think the part that, uh, 
The part that seems to elude some some reviewers is the uncanny aspect to it, where you know she's um, she is wondering if her voice is cursed. Right. Yeah. She's realizing that she's always sort of believed that, and she's trying to think about how that is affecting both her 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 future and her past. Within the novel, you sort of see that her mother she felt felt she was cursed from her mother, but she also finds that she's got a, uh, a an operatic um, craft curse as well, that her voice is very, <laughs> um, it's beautiful, but it can be broken. Right. So there's also the fact that she could, she will, not even that she could, but she will lose her voice at one point. That part of the novel was inspired by uh, when Jenny Lind famously lost her voice mm. for through over singing and actually had to recuperate it with training from Manuel Garcia, who is the father of uh, Pauline Viardo Garcia, who is the voice teacher for Liliette in the novel. Wow. Oh, cool. That's interesting. Was, was that something that you real you definitely wanted to start with? Like she loses her voice and then like working backwards or I guess the bigger question is like, how did you prepare for this <laughs> voice driven novel? Because it's very much in Liliette's voice. There was a there were a couple of different moments that you know carried a charge in the process before the writing of it actually began. Uh, you know, if I think of it, it seems like you know the different pieces of a spell. Um, there was getting the story of Jenny Lind from uh, my friend, the late David Rakoff, when he I like ran into him on the street and he just randomly started talking to me about her <laughs> and I, I still don't know why uh, I'm very grateful. I wouldn't have written this novel without that wow. encounter oh. um, because I just wouldn't, I, I don't know when I would have come across the story a and B, I don't know that I would have been open to it in quite the same way. You know, I had been like when I was writing Edinburgh, there was an opera singer character in it who kind of took the draft over. And I remember cutting her sections back and kind of jokingly saying, you know, at the time you'll get your own novel later. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there were these photos that I found of the, the 1882 ice festival in Minneapolis, St. Paul, which had these like amazing, uh, Details like a, a castle made entirely out of lake ice that was lit up by torches in the night Whoa. and, uh, you know, blocks of lake ice that had fish frozen into them uh, with the torchlight coming through. And and then in the castle, there was this woman who was wearing a, a hooded cloak with a fur trim. And I remember wondering, like who is she? She was carrying a torch and it looked very kind of fairy tale like and mythological. And I, I think of that as sort of the ending past the ending of the novel, you know, mm -hmm. the kind of thing that she's a moment she's headed towards. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's a, a kind of a, a thing that I did with Edinburgh also where uh, I imagined what was, what was past the ending. It was a little something I, did after reading Anne Carson talk about endings where she cool. talked about, I remember she talked about like liking it, liking an ending that would be like 
walking around the back of a house, you know, like imagining past where you thought the ending should be just so that you know that you chose the right place. Right. That you, you didn't stop before something that maybe should be in the narrative happened too. Right. So I, and I actually did try to write this kind of crazy scene that takes place at the festival. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I tried to make it as much as possible, like the ending to, uh, to Villette, which is a favorite novel of mine. But then I, I looked it over and looked it over and it just, it seemed to just, uh, be a kind of aesthetic gesture that had no, no power and no purpose. I'm wondering as you talk about sort of these moments from reality that informed the novel, how much, uh, if you felt whether or not like you had to have fidelity to real life, it's one of the great, like as I started reading this novel, I was trying to figure out whether or not she was real and you were telling a real story. And then it was finally when, not finally it happens relatively early, but when Verdi shows up, because for a while I was like, oh, or like, is this Tosca? What's the deal? <laughs> yeah. And then when it clicked for me that she was a fictional character just intersecting with reality, did you feel like you had to stick really close to reality? Or did you feel like by inserting her, you got to play around a little bit? I think some of both. You know, I mean, I think I used... I, I stuck close to the real in certain ways so that I could play with it in other ways. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, the novel means to be a little bit like these kinds of celebrity autobiographies that would appear back in the 19th century that, had, that were somewhat novelistic and, uh, had usually some exaggerations and, <laughs> um, and also, uh, we're full of stories of the famous people that the, the famous person knew as a way of showing off like how famous they were, you know, and right, like name dropping now. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I wanted to, to do that, but to sort of put it through a kind of, um, Angela Carter filter, you know, Ooh, to yeah. sort of like yeah. have it feel a little bit like one of the stories in, the bloody chamber, you know, ate a celebrity autobiography and ran away. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I kind of thought I, I saw some similarities to um, Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, hmm. especially with sort of like the way that um, Chabon would end up like really getting into the description of what's going on inside um, the, the comic. Mm. Where he would describe panel to panel or the plot of like jump or just like jumping off a window. And they're sort <laughs> of like, they were very similar to the, the sort of fleet descriptions we get of these operas that she's performing in. Um, oh, that's interesting. I really loved that, that sort of like quick storytelling in the midst. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's really fun. Um, I kept thinking about people like um, Celine Dion. <laughs> where she has that very famous there's there her her voice is as famous as her like staying silent in between things which i felt like there was some parallels there and there's a lot of parallels i felt with i mean when you look at what's going on with kesha hot and dangerous um and she has this sort of person that like led her up which really felt like there were parallels between the tenor 
and mm. Dr. Luke. Yeah. And oh, that's interesting. So I was curious if you felt like there was any, as you were writing it, did you sort of feel how, how these things just echo? And I, I did feel that. I think that was part of what I was interested in was the way in which I feel like there are all of these aspects of our culture now that uh, originated from that period or at least came to a kind of, like in that period they were brought to a sort of, uh, shape and that shape continues to us, you know? Um, so for example, while I'm sure the Empress Eugenie wasn't the first to, uh, to insist that people not repeat a dress in front of her, mm-hmm. um, I think she was the first to really formalize it, Yeah, you know? Huh. And that, that's the whole reason that, you know, anyone in any celebrity magazine is sort of uh, given any shade for repeating a dress. <laughs> it's like, like the Empress Eugenie's dead, but she's still controlling our idea about like what celebrities should should do and how they should behave. Yeah. Um, so you know, or the uh, you know, my favorite example probably is realizing that Cora Pearl, who appears in the novel, that she was probably the first pop star to show up on stage in a nude jeweled bodysuit, you know, um, with dyed blonde hair. And that's now almost like a a ritual of like a rite of passage. Yeah. You don't even really think about where those things originate or, or maybe you do. And that's when you find it, find a story. Uh, Going back to what you were saying about like the celebrity autobiography angle of this book, how reliable is Liliet. <laughs> there were a bunch of moments where I sort of like, she would sort of just gloss over things or all of a sudden, like it would spin back to the present as she's sort of recounting like, well, and then I went to this person who might've written this mysterious novel mm-hmm. and like, and then it would sort of like <laughs> back into the past. And I had these moments of wondering like, is she, are we getting the whole truth? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's one of the open questions of the novel, I think. And well, she's lying to herself, I think a lot too. One of the easiest ways to lie to other people is to lie to yourself first <laughs> yeah. and yeah. believe it. Yeah. Also the things that are obsessing her are maybe not the same things, uh, that are obsessing the reader at a certain point, but that is a deliberate part of the way the dramatic irony of the novels made so that, you, you do start looking past her in a sense. I mean, a big part of a picaresque is that the, the character is, is an unreliable narrator. Mm-hmm. I kept wondering, I just like circuses. So I, that was like the, a joyous part of the novel to me um, when she's with the, <laughs> with the circus. And there's just, um, I, I like the, it was like the only part of the novel to me that felt like she had family. Mm-hmm. Um, opera seems like it's going to choo- like choose you up. Yeah, uh, The opera world was so vicious back then, it's really hard to understate. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's vicious now too, in its own way, different ways. You know, now, for example, there's a real vogue for uh, tenor singers who look like uh, romantic heroes. And so I have like a very good friend who is one of the most talented tenor singers I can think of. And it's hard for him to get the parts he should for his voice because he doesn't look like Fabio. Mm. Wow. 
Yeah, that seems like a pretty wild world. So it's it was interesting to read about, you know, Pauline Viardo Garcia's problems, uh, this kind of way she was locked out of the Paris opera world as a debut singer and as it had to sort of go abroad to have anywhere to sing at all uh, before returning, of course, uh, in force and taking her revenge on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that it's sort of like, if you're working in the opera world, chances are your life is going to start looking more and more like an opera. So let's, uh, let's pivot from the world of uh, late 19th century opera to Bulgaria. <laughs> early, early 21st century Bulgaria? I think yeah. that's apt. Yeah. Um, of Garth Greenwell's What Belongs to You, uh, which came out early this year. Garth is a trained classical singer, it should be noted. Really? Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Um, who, uh, who then became a writer. Huh. I think that's part of the part of the intense prosody that you can hear in the book, I think comes from from that training. Yeah, I all of a sudden the sort of dense chunks of text but that yet flow so smoothly that now feels like a line of classical music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um why did you recommend this particular book to us? I you know, I think Garth's novel is a kind of the reception it's having and the the appearance of it. It's a kind of watershed moment to me, I think. I mean, I, I'm wary when I say that because I feel like we've had a few moments somewhat like this in the past, but but I think perhaps never quite like this, where uh, where a gay writer has uh, has had such an incredible reception within uh, the mainstream literary press. Mm-hmm. So, um had a rave, rave in the times, mm-hmm. a rave in the times, uh, a rave in the New Yorker, you know, uh, a, an extraordinary review in the London review of books from Adam Mars Jones, who, uh, who does not give that out lightly. You know? <laughs> right. Um, does I, do either of you want to give a, a summary of what it, what it is, Drew? It's, what, what it's, a, it's a fun it's funnily enough as I'm thinking about this like there's not a whole lot of plot that hangs on it it's an American uh, teacher in Bulgaria um, is cruising picks up this young male hustler and they sort of enter into I'm reluctant to call it a relationship in sort of the romantic sense but they they end they end up orbiting each other a little bit and it's about his both dealing with that relationship and then trying to extricate himself from it. Hmm. And there's, there's a big middle section that has nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> That's all written in, uh, in one paragraph. Right. Yeah. It's a, um, that part is, is more about his childhood and sort of trying to come to terms with his relationship to his father and his sort of first, uh, sort of first gay crush. I think of it as an extended aria, in a sense, oh. a tenor aria, you know, in a in an avant-garde opera. That w- it could be that. I think. I mean, the singer would die singing it. It's so long. It's <laughs> 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 the kind of thing you could only maybe do in prose. But you know, I I also think that a big part of the novel is um, 
is capitalism. Mm. The way that, uh, the way that the, the sort of economic situation inside of Bulgaria has in a sense created Mitko, the, the guy that he becomes obsessed with, Mm -hmm. um, the narrator. And, you know, one of the most poignant parts of the novel to me is, uh, is the, the section where he, he comes across the photos of, of who Midco used to be even a few years ago, uh, before he became a hustler mm-hmm. and before the sort of world dropped out on him. And, uh, that's, that's, I think a part that I don't often see talked about in, in the reviews either is the sense that like the way in which the narrator seems to both know and not know how there is a bubble that surrounds him mm-hmm. called America. Yeah, I guess my my ultimate question, and I asked you this when you showed up today, um, was do you think that it was anything more for, for Mitko or was it just economic convenience? Did Mitko really care for him? And I think it's hard to tell. It is hard to tell. I mean, purposefully, purposefully. You know, I think that this novel is an interesting novel to read in relationship to my novel, mm-hmm. yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Because there's, there's some interesting echoes. Right. I think, you know, my main character's, uh, like when she's working in a Maison Cloche and that she's, you know, warned against falling for the clients, I think I can only imagine that Miko has some sort of personal, uh, code like that mm-hmm. you know that it would just be you know a real problem to allow feelings to get into it it's not to say that they don't exist but you f- you probably fight them all the time mm-hmm. it's that weird thing too where as a reader you're like oh well if i start to think that maybe there was something more than just economic transit like i have been suckered by mitko in exactly the same way like more likely than not it was and my my sense of like wanting there to have been something in order to like justify the pain that the narrator has felt. Right. You're on his side. I think, you know, the, it's too bad he didn't have the, the sort of ability to be more of a courtesan, you know, Mm -hmm. in the, in the, in the way that I think courtesans often enjoyed their clients more, Mm -hmm. you know, um, their, their friends more. They were friends with them in a sense. Um, it's, a uh, the, the best and happiest sex workers I know, uh, have a kind of light affection, at least for their regulars, mm-hmm. you know, that they allow to enter in. The first section that has, I think the most sex in it is in a lot of ways, the coolest of the sections. And like mm. the second section, this sort of like You're talking about the bathroom scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's. Like you want it to almost be like a super hot sequence. And instead he like, he holds back a little bit Mm -hmm. so that then as the novel goes on and that the last sexual sequence is like really vibrantly forceful. Yeah. I think there's, well, at the beginning it's, 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 I don't know. Desire comes in into it later. Um, There's the, there's the momentary desire in the first one. And then there's the longing and pining that's included in it in the, in the latter. I keep trying to think about how that 
middle section, like how that is sort of the turn. Like yeah. there's the initial part and we build up this story and then there's, we get backstory on the narrator, but we also, he evidences more emotion than he has yet. Yeah. Why is it in the middle? It's funny. I, I've been saying lately about novels that I think that, um, they have some sort of, uh, the best ones have some kind of elusive, unanswerable mystery at the center of them. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that's definitely true here, you know, that yes. you just, that part of the power of the novel is that Mitko ultimately remains uh, known only to himself. Do we want to move into recommendations? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Drew, do you want to start? Uh, sure. I will start with another one of those books that like, I finally forced myself to get around to. Uh, Sloane Crosley's The Clasp, mm-hmm. which I loved her essays and sort of had been holding off on the book because I was nervous. Um, and the, it's the same voice, but it also it spoke to me very clearly because it's about a bunch of college kids who've known each other for about 10 years. And as they have like not quite gotten as far into the world as they thought they would, they're sort of reflecting back on the fact that like, fate threw them together because they all decided to go to the same school together and how those friendships sort of warp and change. Mm -hmm. But then with also like a little bit of just the silliest, strangest, like, hey, there's this necklace that maybe was stolen by the Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) It's somewhere in France. And they're all kind of like, they all sort of end up drifting towards it. Mm. Um, Wow. I just, I, I had a lot, it was a nice light, fun spring novel okay yeah. sounds good uh do you want to go alexander do you sure um jan morris's hav mm. is something that i am teaching this summer at the uh the nyu creative writing program in florence oh wow um Ooh. it's one of the i'm teaching a, a seminar there called imaginary countries uh which is about world building and I thought it would be fun to to read Hav there, which if you don't know it is, Jen Morris is a, a trans woman uh, travel writer, uh, a real like kind of classic from the mid to the end of the 20th century in terms of the kinds of travel writing that she did and, or does rather, she's still alive. And Hav, is fiction. It's set in a novel that is so convincingly written as a trip to a country that when you read it, it's hard to imagine that Hob doesn't exist. And I absolutely love it. I think it's completely idiosyncratic and uh, and it's it's perfect travel reading, Mm. you know, for sure, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the students think of it. Wow, that sounds delightful. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Christopher? Uh, oh, I uh, I read, I, I mentioned this in What'd You Buy a couple, couple episodes ago, but now I've read it, and I loved it. Uh, Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler. Mm. It's, uh, it comes out at the end of May, um, and pick it up, especially if you um, have ever worked in the restaurant industry. 
Um, <laughs> it, it will remind you of so many things and hijinks that you probably... There are things in the book that I feel like everybody who's ever worked in a restaurant is going to be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it was exactly like that. Uh, and then there's just a beautiful... It's about a girl who uh, comes to New York and s- ends up working at a, um, a highfalutin Union Square restaurant and sort of as she... F- figures out her palate and how to taste things. So it's very much about taste and flavor and knowing yourself. Um, it's an incredible, incredible book. Hypnotic is the word I've decided is, is good for it. That's nice. what I say. I can see it right there on the shelf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, if you can read it with some rosé, you should, because it'll match the cover. <laughs> and we here are all about matching our drinks to our books. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but uh, thank you so much. Sure, for thank you. Us. Thank you. This was delightful. Um, and to all of you people out there, we still would love you guys to um, send in your recommendations um, or a thought you've had on a book. If you just uh, record your thought less than a minute onto your phone and send us the MP3 file, we'll put it in the episode. Um, Probably with some fun music. Yeah. So uh, so many damn books at gmail.com. Just send like a one minute reason why we should read a book and you know your name and where you're from okay thanks guys no thank you a joke i've made in the past like of course you fall in love with whores they do everything that you want them to do